Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And today we're going up to London, where we're being joined by Hugo Brennan, who's been joining us all this week to talk about North Africa.、Uh, Hugo is a recent graduate of the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. He recently completed his dissertation on China's important,、uh, growing importance in、uh, MENA, that is the Middle East and North Africa. And、uh, today we're going to be talking about Libya. So a very good welcome to you. Good afternoon to you,、uh, Hugo. Good afternoon. Great to be here. Well, we're so excited to talk to you today about Libya because Libya was really kind of came on the screen back in 2011 when all of a sudden we discovered that there were some 36,000 Chinese who were actually in Libya, and we found this out because during the Arab Spring in the fall of, of Muammar Gaddafi,、uh, there was this massive evacuation of all foreigners before the country imploded in, in civil war, and we are typically accustomed to seeing, you know, the Americans and the British. And the French, and they kind of do these evacuations, which get a lot of coverage by the international news networks. What was interesting at that time, and I'll just recall, bring you back to 2011 in the spring. Then、uh, the Americans were really struggling to get their people out, and it was this fiasco where Hillary Clinton, you know, said we're, we're, we're on top of everything, but they couldn't get the people out, and and they sent boats, and the weather was bad, and the timing was bad, it was just a mess. And meanwhile, off on the side, 37. Thousand Chinese are just walking out, and the, the the evacuation was stunning in its efficiency, and it really kind of brought to light、uh, some of the that the fact that the Chinese have arrived here. Now, part of that evacuation was being coordinated by、uh, the Shuzhou Battle Group, which had come through the Suez Canal, which was China's most sophisticated、uh, battle group that came through, and it, it is, and that was again something that caught a lot of people's attention. So, we're going to kind of check in with Hugo now to find out the state. State of Sino-Libyan relations after the,、um, the, the the fall of, of Muammar Gaddafi, and where we are today, and is this a country, despite the fact that it lacks stability and it doesn't have、uh, full control of its own country, in the southern parts of Libya are still basically lawless. Is this a, a, an important country, in your opinion, Hugo, for us to focus on with respect to China's engagement in Africa?、Um, it's certainly an interesting one.、Uh, I'm not sure about important, but. Definitely, during the revolution, China obviously very lukewarm about supporting the National Transitional Council, and members of that、uh, council came out and said that China would be punished for not fully supporting the revolution. And it's interesting to sort of follow that up and see if there's any truth to that.、Um, Sorry, go on. Yeah, you know, you you talk about the hesitation that they had, and and just a little bit more context here.、Uh, UN Resolution 1973, which was the Security Council resolution that authorized military operations over and in, in Libya,、uh, which gave the green light to the Americans, the British, and the French to to begin engagement there,、um, was was really a, in some ways a milestone for the Chinese because they abstained from that vote rather than than voting for it, but that abstention gave. 
gave it, uh, allowed it to proceed. And people were a little bit surprised that they abstained and they actually led, because the Chinese for the most part do not like to have international military operations, no matter how legitimate, and we're seeing that in Syria today, uh, to occur. And, and they were very unhappy with how this turned out, that the military engagement went on much longer than they wanted. It felt like a witch hunt for Gaddafi, and it really kind of shook them. And so it's interesting, Hugo, for you to talk about how even in the transitional government, they were, they were apprehensive as well. So it seems that, that if we're going to describe modern Sino-Libyan relations, apprehensive seems to be the word to describe it. Am I wrong on that? No, I think that's right. Um, you're right about the decision to abstain from 1973. The resolution was an important milestone. And I think you have to put that in the context of the wider Arab Spring and the pace that events were unfolding. So you had um, changes of authoritarian government or the authoritarian governments falling in Tunisia and then Egypt. And then this happened in Libya. So I think the Chinese were slightly taken by surprise, as most of the world were, by the Arab Spring. Um, and you're right to say they're very not keen on military interventions that come without the uh, home government uh, agreeing to them. So in Sudan, if you saw the peacekeeping in Sudan, it's slightly different because the al-Bashir government allowed the UN peacekeeping force to come in, whereas Libya, obviously, it was a military intervention that didn't have the permission of the central state to come in. So I think that's why it's particularly interesting. Um, you, in, in your dissertation, you, you laid out a very interesting you know, kind of uh, dynamic of how China was kind of playing both sides at the same time, like, you know, kind of maintaining ties with, with the Gaddafi side and the government, but also, you know, kind of opening up ties with the rebels that I, I actually was not really aware of. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how, how they managed that kind of transition. Sure. Um, they were, as I say, very lukewarm about the National Transitional Council. But when it became clear that they were on the offensive, especially once the NATO military intervention went in and changed the military balance, then they started um, sort of high-level diplomatic meetings with the National Transitional Council sort of as a hedging strategy in case they were eventually to win out. Although they did hold off full recognition until... I think six weeks before Gaddafi himself was finally ousted, and they were the last major power to do so. So they were definitely sort of torn between adhering to non-interference and therefore supporting or at least being neutral, supporting Gaddafi or at least being neutral, and then waking up to the new reality that the National Transitional Council might well win and therefore they should have some diplomatic contact with them. You know, when we think of Libya, we think of, of of one thing, which is oftentimes is oil, and I mean that that they don't really do much more other than oil, and so obviously when we think of the Chinese coming into and engaging Libya, it, it's it's going to be focused on on hydrocarbons and oil exports, and Libya is famous for uh, a certain kind of oil that is that is among the best quality in the world. So the appeal for China is is obvious. The question is that the Chinese are, are sometimes Taking, from what we hear, taking a look at their portfolio in parts of the Middle East and North Africa and all of Africa, 
and kind of shying away from some of the more inst- unstable regions. It's, it, it may be just too risky for them to do that, particularly because, as we've talked about, they're not going to go to this, the extent to deploy either private security contractors or actual uh, People's Liberation Army um, troops to protect their installations and their people, unlike, say, the Americans who, who have not shown, or the French, who, who will actually you know, deploy their military to protect their oil investments and whatnot. So I guess my question is, is, is about the, the risk level and the risk tolerance that the Chinese have in a place like Libya. And is it, you know, just it's a little bit, it's a, it's a lot to take in for them. Um, it's true. But if you look at where China is operating on the African continent, they often are in very risky places. And you look at Sudan, for example, that, that is obviously a risky area to be operating in. Libya, they mainly it's infrastructure contracts, it's not actually oil. Um, so China buys a lot of Libyan oil, but its actual investments in Libyan oil is generally exploratory. It's not actually a big upstream oil extraction player. So it generally buys Libyan oil, but it's not physically there in huge numbers in the oil sector. Kobus, I think it's interesting that, you know, the, the Chinese when we look at where their oil investments are coming from, how diverse and how spread out they are. And, and, and the fact that the, that the Chinese are, are so engaged in a country like Libya, it, despite the fact that Libya's government is still unsettled, uh, they're more or less a country that is teetering on, on dissolution. Uh, and that's not an exaggeration, considering that the, 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 the General National Congress has had a difficult time unifying the country in the, in the aftermath of Gaddafi. So it, it just seems like, you know, the Chinese, you know, aren't afraid of anything when it comes to putting their money in there and people in there and their investments in some of the riskiest parts of the world. I guess so. But I mean, at the same time, you know, as I understood it, the Chinese lost a lot of money in Libya, um, you know, kind of due to the, to the revolution, that are quite kind of large investments. And I saw um, over the last year, there were these delegations from China visiting Tripoli, talking with the new government about the possibility of coming back. Um, but one of the one of the talking points there was reparations for the for the kind of investments that they lost. Um, and uh, I actually wanted to check with with Hugo. Like Hugo, do you have an idea about where it stands now? Are those Chinese companies back? Are they planning to come back, or are they are some of them you know kind of staying away? Sure. Um, so Huawei, Huawei, and ZTE, uh, the two uh, telecommunications companies, they return fairly quickly. For the state-owned enterprises, it's been much slower. It's been a much more slow process because there have been big disputes over compensation. Um, so as it stands, I believe in May, there was an agreement for the China State Construction Engineering Corporation to return to a project in Benghazi to build 20,000 new homes. Uh, so I, that one has been sorted out, and I think they have returned. Yeah, I know in June there were talks for the China Railway Construction Corporation to resume a $12 billion contract for a rail network. And again, the issue was compensation for lost time and equipment. But I don't know where that stands. I know they're talking about returning, but whether they have actually returned, I don't think so. 
You know, it seems like China would be ideally positioned to help rebuild Libya after the war by, by virtue of the fact that they can subsidize so much of their construction with state-owned financing and also do these oil for infrastructure deals that, the, that other countries can't do. And I guess when you were doing your research, particularly looking at the contemporary period of Sino-Libyan relations, you know, there's been some frustration on the part of the Libyans with both the Americans and the French for not kind of following through after decapitating Gaddafi. Uh, that, you know, for them, that was the major issue. So they, they basically kicked the crap out of, out of Gaddafi and then left and have not come, come through. The Americans, when we talk about Libya today, it's all about the assassination of the ambassador in Benghazi, nothing about the rebuilding of the country. So I guess I wonder, you know, thinking about the Chinese who, who could be very well positioned given their experience doing this in so many African countries and in the Middle East as well, could that be an opportunity for them to develop an upper hand over the French and, and, and the Americans who are the traditional powers? Uh, certainly, I would think so, yes. If you look before the revolution, uh, I think it was around $18 billion worth of infrastructure contracts. So they already were, from around 2008 onwards, getting into the Libyan infrastructure market in a big way. Uh, and like you say, the Western powers haven't followed up on the revolution with any this kind of uh, rehabilitation assistance so or reconstruction assistance so I think there is definitely a role China will play in, in Libya to come. Cobus, you know every, um, oh, Do you God. have an idea so, sorry, sorry to interrupt, um, do you have an idea about how their kind of this kind of half-hearted support of, of, the, river, of the resolution uh, 1973 how that affected their, their wider image in the region um, the reason I'm asking is you know I think from Western perspectives, Libya was always seen as a bit of a basket case. But I think from African perspectives, particularly I'm speaking from South Africa, the really the left wing of the ruling party had a lot of sympathy and, and got a lot of support from Libya. And, they, and they, there were people in South Africa who saw Gaddafi as this kind of slightly glamorous figure, um, you know, always traveling with the, the female bodyguards and setting up the tent and outside of his official residence, wherever he travels and so on. So, um, you know, I was wondering whether the Chinese got a bit of a, and whether the image took a bit of a knock, you know, in the sub-region because they supported this resolution and because it then turned into basically regime change. I think certainly it did take a knock, but the threats that were sort of made by various members of the Transitional Council saying that they would lose out on future infrastructure contracts and oil deals because they didn't support the revolution, I'm not sure that they will... Uh, actually happen because of what China can offer Libya and how important it could be in the reconstruction of the country. So who has the most leverage in this relationship? Is it the Libyans with the oil or is it the Chinese with the infrastructure? Ooh, uh, interesting question. Um, I think Libya obviously needs someone to come in and do this reconstruction in China is perfectly placed and experienced in doing this. But also Libya is a major or at least China buys a lot of Libyan oil, and obviously that's a very important part of the Chinese economic model. But China does spread its oil purchases around lots of different countries, so it's not overly reliant on any one country. So I think about 3% of China's total oil is bought from Libya. 
So perhaps fairly evenly matched. In yeah, that. I mean, three percent doesn't sound like a lot, but it actually is a lot in the broader scheme of things uh, because because as you said, they spread out their oil investments in so many parts of the world. Another area to kind of think about in this in this context is that the United States is increasingly going to be withdrawing from the Middle East and North Africa or in Africa as a whole from its oil purchases as it becomes more energy independent. And what this is going to do is going to leave China to fill that void. And so how China manages these relationships in very complex situations, very unstable situations, uh, will will be very interesting to watch. So Libya is just one. Obviously, the Iran situation is another where a lot of oil comes out of Iran. That, too, has a potential for tremendous instability. And and throughout the Gulf, where the China uh, role is going to grow, in fact, a lot of international relations experts have basically said, you know, the future of, of international relations in this region will be a China problem, not an American problem anymore. And so looking at what you've talked about in the context of Libya brings that to mind. Kobus, let's kind of wrap up this conversation with, with some final thoughts on, on, on where you think the importance of the Sino-Libyan uh, relationship is as it relates to, the, to Africa as a whole. Because as you said, you know, Gaddafi really was a, a, just a charismatic you know, figure who, who represented the continent as a whole. But oftentimes, given the fact that he's in the north, they're cut off from what happens in the broader trends and the broader memes in Africa and, and particularly in the discussions with China. Yeah, I think so. I think to a certain extent, Gaddafi's generation of charismatic and repressive, I mean, let's be clear, um, you know, that kind of revolutionary leaders are disappearing from Africa. Um, You know, some of them are left, but but generally they're slowly but surely kind of disappearing. Um, And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how China deals with the, the governments that follow them up. At the same time, I think it's going to be really interesting to see whether we're going to see a kind of a massive evacuation again, you know, when something flares up somewhere else in Africa, because there's large Chinese populations all over Africa, um, and it'll be very interesting to see whether that kind of, you know, scenario happens again. Well, I think each time that this happens, they, they, they're learning, and they're getting better at it, and they're more, you one would think, uh, but, you know, they've had hostage problems in Egypt and Sudan, uh, they've had evacuations out of Libya, uh, you know, so one tends to think that, you know, in this is what Hugo pointed out, is that part of this is building relationships and learning and building their networks so that in the next 10, 15, 20 years, uh, they will be able to be more uh, effective in those parts of the world. But it's interesting, too, that you know, unlike the West, who has a whole moral structure in their foreign policy, the Chinese come into it completely neutral morality-wise. I mean, if you can give us oil and you can give us a resource, great, we'll do business with you. And unimpeded by those, the, the, that morality, it offers a lot of opportunities in a place like Libya, which is still very much in flux. Uh, before we go, Hugo, just give us a, a final thought about what you think. People, when they're, if they're not familiar with Sino-Libyan relations, what's the one or two things that they should, they should focus on? Um, I think the two most interesting aspects would be the infrastructure, just the sheer size of the infrastructure projects and how those new contracts will be given out if China will play a role in the future. Uh, that would be very interesting. And also oil concessions. So they're not a major extraction player at the moment, but if eventually they do, the Libyan government do get around to making a new constitution, there's a talk of selling, putting a whole new raft of oil concessions up for sale. And it'll be interesting to see who moves in and gets those new oil concessions. Will it be the Western oil companies who have traditionally dominated the Libyan oil market? Or will it be actors like China coming in and sort of challenging that dominance. So I think that those would be interesting areas. 
And on the infrastructure side, you know, so much of the infrastructure was built by, you know, the former colonial power, Italy. Uh, and so to see the infrastructure now reorient towards either more Libyan or more Chinese will be very interesting as well. So, for example, most of the international phone lines all route through Italy uh, if you want to make an international phone call in, uh, in, in Libya. So by, by developing this infrastructure that is financed by the oil, it may actually send Libya on to a very different direction. So, okay, so we've kind of dived into that one. This is an area that is absolutely fascinating. Not a lot of research on this, but, you know, we're hopefully going to continue to focus on it in, in future shows and as well as on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Uh, Hugo, at the end of every show, one of the things we like to do is guide people to uh, our Twitter or various Facebook pages where they can follow what you're reading and what you're writing. What's the best, play, best way for people to stay in touch with you? Um, the best place is Twitter, and it would be Hugo Brennan 1988. So it's H U G O B R E N N A N 1988, and you can follow me on there. Excellent. And uh, Kobus and I both together, we we oversee the the China Africa Project Facebook page at China at Facebook.com/slash China Africa Project. Uh, Kobus, both of you and I put our names in brackets so people know who they're talking to. So in addition to Facebook, where can people follow you, Kobus? You can also follow me on Twitter. That's I'm at Stadnesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can follow me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. And uh, the best way you can follow us on this podcast is by subscribing on iTunes. But you can also follow us on the BlackBerry Network in South Africa. We're on the Kindle, uh, as well as being on SoundCloud and Stitcher. So uh, until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. 